Let's face it, people have different sleep needs. While you love your partner, sleeping next to them might not always be the most comfortable. Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Maybe you prefer a firmer mattress and your partner needs something softer. Because of the individualized comfort that you get from Sleep Number Smart Beds, you and your partner will sleep better together. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. And their temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. The smart beds even automatically respond and adjust to your movements so you sleep comfortably all night long. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com you are now listening to postmortem with mick garris where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts to the renowned horror director writer and producer now here's your host mick garris From Nice Guy Productions World Headquarters overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley, I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. When I began directing in the late 80s and into the 90s, true horror was a rarity on television. Most televised horror fare on the networks at the time was watered down, tailored around commercial breaks, and had to have sponsor approval so as not to scare away the viewers for their products. The Network Standards and Practices departments looked for anything that might smack of transgressiveness, which could sneak through the innocent eyes of delicate viewers. They would do our parenting for us, right? The TV movies and series that were brushed with horror were not, for the most part, made by people with a passion for and understanding of our beloved dark genre. There were exceptions, of course, as with any rule, but mostly they were written by the same people who wrote and directed the TV nighttime soaps, westerns, courtroom dramas, and more mainstream fare, making these dips of the toes into horror mainstream themselves. Horror was for the big screen back then, and though I was lucky enough to begin my career at a time when Stephen King and his fans and acolytes were being accepted in primetime, it was still a battle royale to get true horror on the airwaves. But oh, how times have changed. Even before the pandemic changed the way America consumes its entertainment, horror had become one of the most popular genres on television, particularly when you count the streaming services, which have become ubiquitous. I would dare to say that the horror available on our home screens is often better than what reaches the big screen these days. Consider these shows in no particular order, which are an amazing alternative to the franchise horror that blankets movie screens. The Outsider, The Walking Dead, What We Do in the Shadows, Castle Rock, Folklore, The Haunting of Hill House, Servant, Lovecraft Country, Lisey's Story, Monsterland, and Ash vs. the Evil Dead. And that's just a sampling. Television has grown up since the days when it was exclusive to the broadcast networks, and it's time to celebrate our fortune in living in what has become the new golden age of small-screen screams. An excellent example of high-end horror at home is the three-part Fear Street series inspired by the books of R.L. Stein. 
The co-writer and director, Lee Janiak, will give us her insight into her experiences on this lavish production and how she brought it to the screen after this. Let's take a couple of minutes to talk about our good friends at Shudder. Because Shudder is the streaming service with the best selection of horror, thriller, and supernatural movies, series, and originals. From Hollywood favorites and cult classics to original series and critically acclaimed new genre films you won't find anywhere else. Streaming uncut and commercial-free right to your favorite devices. Shudder is always releasing new content. And new this month are the slasher comedy Vicious Fun, about a horror movie critic who stumbles into a support group for serial killers, featuring Anchorman's David Koechner and Anything for Jackson star Julian Richings among the killer cast. The supernatural thriller Son, where Halloween's Andy Matichek plays a mother who will stop at nothing to save her mysteriously ill young son from a cult she believes is trying to kidnap him. And Candisha, the latest from Inside's Alexandre Bustillo and Julienne Maury, about a trio of teen girls who accidentally invoke a vengeful demon. Some of the notable titles for this month on Shudder is George A. Romero's long-lost The Amusement Park, exclusive to Shudder now, Super Deep and Unquiet Grave, Catherine Bigelow's vampire classic Near Dark, Joe Dante's original 1978 Piranha, and The Boy Behind the Door. You can stream great thrillers, horror, and suspense for $5.99 a month or $56.99 a year. Shudder has the largest, fastest-growing, human-curated selection of thrilling and dangerous entertainment. You might call them the Netflix for horror. You can stream The Unexpected on all your favorite devices, including iPhone, iPad, Apple TV, Xbox One, Amazon Fire TV, Google Chromecast, Roku, Android devices, and you name it. I've been a Shudder subscriber for a long time, and they were instrumental in helping to produce Nightmare Cinema, which, of course, you can watch on Shudder at your pleasure. To order Shutter free for 30 days, go to Shutter.com and use the promo code POSTMORTEMDREAD. That's S-H-U-D-D-E-R.com and POSTMORTEMDREAD. Available now from Dread, The Maid. Joy is the new maid of a royal house whose previous maid disappeared under mysterious circumstances and is now haunting and terrorizing the family. Joy works to uncover the reasons behind the former maid's disappearance. The Maid, available on demand everywhere and on Blu-ray August 17th. Also coming soon to dread Howling Village. From the visionary director of The Grudge and The Grudge 2 comes Howling Village, where, after her brother goes missing, a young psychologist visits an infamous haunted and cursed location known as Howling Village, what else, to investigate his disappearance and uncover her family's dark history. Howling Village will be available on demand everywhere on August 17th and on Blu-ray September 14th. So, Lee, you were brought up in Ohio, but your schooling brought you a degree uh, at the University of Chicago in modern Jewish studies and then NYU. So tell me how that path led you to 
<laughs> where we are today with Fear Street. It's funny. So I, yeah, I grew up east of Cleveland, um, and I kind of I was I was a big kind of movie fan, and I did a lot of theater in high school, and I didn't really understand what the path to becoming a director or a filmmaker was. And it, I would be lying if I said that I even thought that it was something available to me. I didn't really, like, I loved watching movies. I was always going to the theater. I was renting things like crazy, but I didn't really know of any female directors. Um, and it wasn't, it just wasn't something that was on my radar. Um, so when I, when it was time for me to leave, I, I applied to NYU. So I actually went to NYU before the University of Chicago. Ah, okay. Did you study film at NYU? No. So I was in Gallatin and Gallatin is, if you know anything about NYU is this, um, is one of the schools like Tisch is where like the film school is in Gallatin, you make your own major. And I kind of had this idea that I was going to be able to balance doing the creative, like kind of looking into theater and creative writing, and then also getting a quote unquote real education. <laughs> which was only like so successful, I would say, but I, I loved, I loved being at NYU and I did a lot of writing there and I was, you know, continuing my love of movies, which is what I consider my film school um, was just always just watching things. And, and then I was also studying comparative religion and I ended up focusing on modern Jewish studies. I lived in Israel for a while. I'm, I'm also not Jewish. That's worth, I guess, mentioning. I guess so, yes. I know. I know. But I fell in love with Hebrew and I just was kind of completely interested. And, um, and then I ended up deciding between going to grad school for film or going to grad school to pursue my PhD. And that's when I ended up going to the University of Chicago. I chose the academic path. Um, and very shortly after getting to Chicago, I was probably maybe in my first semester there. I was like, oh, no, this is not like what <laughs> I'm doing. Like, I still have time to pursue what I want to do. And I started um, writing screenplays with my writing partner, who also was at the University of Chicago at the time. Um, I was sitting in on all of these writing classes and I was continuing to always consume as many kind of things as I could. And then finally, I dropped out of that and moved to Los Angeles. Interesting. So when did it first become an achievable goal to you when you realized, you know, maybe I could really make this happen? I, you know, I don't know if this was so this was like 2005 that I left Chicago and moved to L.A. And at that point, I was, you know, I was relatively young and I was kind of like, I'm going to try this with everything that I have in me. And, it, you know, it's hard when you're when you're coming out here and you have to pay the bills. And you're yes. also trying to like, <laughs> you're trying to write, you're trying to create opportunity. Um, so it was this strange thing where I had a day job um, where I was lucky enough to get a day job working in the film industry for producers. Mm -hmm. um, so I worked at Leonardo DiCaprio's production company, Appian Way. And then I worked for a producer named Kevin Misher and his company. And yeah. all the while I was like writing and like, we were trying to break in and et cetera, et cetera. And then ultimately I, uh, I got to a place where we wrote Honeymoon, which was mm -hmm. a small indie movie. Um, and I kind of went in this with mentality of like, I'm going to make this movie no matter what. Like, however much money we end up getting for financing, I'm going to do this. So tell me about Honeymoon. Uh, you know, the independent world is just as difficult to crack as the major studio world. But it does offer you 
more opportunity to express your artistic sen sensibility in a very personal and intimate way, but it also has a more limited reach into the public consciousness. So tell me about how you managed to get that together and, and what the roots of the idea was, because it's a very contained kind of two-hander that's very, very suspenseful, and it keeps changing uh, your expectations in a really interesting way. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I so I think it started from this idea of wanting to tell a story about two people that are really genuinely in love, and then watching how that relationship could be pulled apart by exterior forces. Um, and I've always been a big fan of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Uh -huh. So there was this idea that we had of like, let's make a very intimate body snatcher movie and try to keep it as grounded as possible in this experience of like, what is it when the person that you love starts to become unfamiliar, which I think happens, you know, unfortunately, in, in many relationships, you, you, you reach yeah. out and you're like, what do you mean you, you want, you know, ketchup on your steak and suddenly it's like <laughs> the world changes so obviously with honeymoon we took it to a very kind of crazy genre place but, but that was the that was the incipient kind of idea was really inspired by body snatchers and then the other thing was keeping it contained because we knew it would be challenging you know as you said to find financing um so i was very lucky with that movie um, my producer one of my producers on that patrick baker worked at one of the production companies that i worked at and he knew rich people for lack of a, <laughs> oh there's no other way to sugarcoat it like he knew people that were interested in in being patron to the arts and knowing that like investing in film is a terrible decision <laughs> you rarely make your money back um but i was i was very lucky to kind of get that support so it, it, from finishing the script i think that he was able to kind of get financing together over a year which is pretty short in the grand scheme of things. Um, and we made the movie and then it was, it was very much embraced um, on the festival circuit and with the horror community. And, and like you said, which I'm so happy that you said this because one of the awesome things about indie film is that you can do crazy things. Like you don't have like the studio being like, no, like, what are you talking about? You can't pull that thing out of her vagina. Like, like things you <laughs> never be able to do. I was able to do on that movie and it was very kind of creatively freeing. Um, so it, that was a great, great experience for me. Was working for producers in whatever capacity it was, was that a window for you to see what was marketable? Did that help you in that regard? Was, was making a genre film a commercial, um, intentionally commercial move that you made, or have you always been drawn to the genre? No, so working for producers, I think was very interesting because I did get a good sense of kind of what the, the big kind of like studio world was looking for, for sure. Um, making genre movies was not a, a business decision. That was more like, I, I kind of was like, what is the story that I wanna tell? with Honeymoon, like I said, I was drawn to invasion. Um, and I grew up kind of loving horror. And I was I was a kid in the 80s, and then a teenager in the 90s. And so I feel like I have these kind of really like intense nostalgic memories of, of going to the video store, going to the blockbuster or the Hollywood video, renting things or like, turning on, you know, whatever it is late at night, HBO, which would be like running like, 
reruns of, I mean, actually it wasn't HBO. I don't know where, but I have very distinct memories of watching all of like the child's play movies at sleep <laughs> parties. Um, so I just kind of, all of those crazy kind of slashers from the late eighties were just staples of my childhood and slumber parties to my mom's dismay, by the way, she <laughs> was like, I had this conversation with her this weekend. She was like, I read in this interview, you were talking about watching Nightmare on Elm Street. Did that really happen? And I was like, yeah, it happened. <laughs> Uh-oh. Like, oh, You've been outed. Yeah. Uh, you were too young for that. And I was like, you rented Psycho for me. <laughs> How is that okay? Um, and then when I, you know, when I became a teenager, that was kind of, Scream came out in 96 when I was 16. And that was just like, my head just exploded of like the possibility of what genre could do. Um, right. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, the meta, the meta example of what Wes Craven did. Um, yeah. And uh, interestingly enough, after you did Honeymoon, you did a couple episodes of the TV series Scream. Yeah. So tell me the difference between being your own boss, uh, writer and director, producer. Yeah. Uh, and then you are a director for hire on the machine that makes a series. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a weird thing. Um, I think that it's kind of freeing and and a good experience. Like for me, finishing Honeymoon and then being able to be hired to work on the Scream series was such a dream come true because obviously I had been, you know, a fan of the original kind of franchise and the people that were involved in this TV reboot were exciting and wanted it to be bloody as bloody as it could be on MTV. Um, and, and there was something just about like, okay, I'm stepping into this more like structured world outside of indie film and I'm going to have bigger toys to play with. I'm going to have a bigger budget. And like, frankly, at the end of the day, the um, the bullseye isn't right on my face in the same <laughs> way. So You're not responsible for everything. Totally. Like not every decision goes through me. So it was it was kind of awesome. And I just, the cast was really great. Um, it, was, it was a very good experience for me. I really liked doing that show. I kind of avoided uh, network television for a long time and episodic things. And I've done several in the last few years and I've loved it. And, yeah. you know, we've talked about it before on the show, but I did an episode of Once Upon a Time that has the most emotional scene I've ever directed in it. Yeah. Everyone in the crew and cast were crying when we were shooting. And it's, wow. and you have all the toys at your disposal that you don't have an independent film. Uh, and when you're done, you're done. <laughs> <laughs> and you walk away and you're like, I did what I could. And I, you know, I, I gave everything for these like two weeks or however long it is. I don't know. It's really, I really like doing it. It's, I think it's really fun. Well, Scream and uh, all of the teenage viewing that you did really prepared you for Fear Street. Now, Fear Street, when I think of R.L. Stein, I don't think of the extreme violence and sexuality and all of this that goes into it. So what were the marching orders? Uh, how much of it really had to do with Stein? As I'm a little bit too old to have read those books in my youth. Um, uh, I, are they adaptations of stories that were actually from the books or were they all original? Yeah, so basically what happened is my producers kind of approached me in 2017. They were like, we have the rights to Fear Street. Um, is this something that you would be interested in thinking about and, you know, pitching and blah, blah, blah. And I was immediately super interested because, you know, as I mentioned, teenager in the nineties, Fear Street was my sweet spot. My brother was a goosebumps person and I was 
more of a fear street and um, a little more advanced yeah a little more advanced it was it was it was a little edgier it was more like it felt subversive um there was hints of sex like all of the things but it's not it's definitely not r-rated like for sure but the thing that i felt like when we started figuring out the story was I was trying to preserve kind of the spirit of what it felt like to read read the books when I was a teenager. And so fun was the most important thing. Like, and that was kind of driving every decision with the scripts of like, is this fun? Is this scene fun? Are we going to feel happy even though bad thing, you know what I mean? Like we were trying to like negotiate like the joy that you could find in horror movies. Um, Cause I thought I that was pretty hardcore in there too. I mean, yeah. there's a certain bread slicing scene. <laughs> the bread slicer was like something I'd never seen before. Totally. And that was like, and that is like, it's awful and it's violent and hopefully horrific, but also like so crazy and fun <laughs> that like, so that was kind of the main thing. And then also this idea that um, the memory of the books was, was harsh. Like, I remember reading them and feeling like, ooh, am I supposed to be reading them? So there was, that was the other thing. Like, for me was, I wanted to preserve that feeling of like, if you're 12 or 13 and you're sneaking to click on this movie, you're going to, you're going to be scarred. You're going to, you know, it's going to deliver in the the way that like we want it to. Um, And I think also when you're making slasher movies, you got to have, like you got an art, a slasher movie has to be R-rated. Right. Got to be a bit transgressive. Yeah, exactly. But what's also interesting about the genre is that it allows you to talk about issues, in this case, sexual identity and gender identity and even racial issues and social issues through the eyes of young people that are not protected. There's no cotton wrapping around them. You know, the, they're confronted face to face with mortality and, and life choices that they're going to be judged upon. And the genre seems to be particularly well suited to, to adapt to that. Tell me about how you use that format. I'm wow. Yeah. Great. You just did like the thesis of like what I, I mean, that's amazing. I, but that's exactly right. I mean, I think that's why I'm drawn to horror generally is because you, you get to make these crazy movies, but then you can also kind of ask these questions that are, are a little more important and, and you're not, it doesn't feel like medicine when you're watching as a viewer, you know, you're it's built into the DNA. And that to me was the exciting part about Fear Street was there's been such a, a wonderful kind of tradition of slasher movie from the seventies into the eighties through the nineties. And when I was doing, when I started working on Fear Street, I had this question of why, like, why should we be doing this now when there's all these, like, what do I have to contribute to this amazing genre? Um, And because I wanted it to feel nostalgic, but I didn't want it to feel like parody. Um, And so that the the answer for me kind of lay in in figuring out the thematics and the questions that these teenagers were going through and being able to kind of represent um, characters that reflect the world that actually existed in in the 70s and the 80s and 90s, but weren't necessarily represented in film and television. Um, And so we created this world of Shadyside and Sunnyvale and this world of the haves and the have-nots and focused on characters that probably would die in a traditional kind of slasher movie pretty quickly um, or wouldn't even be kind of allowed on screen. Um, 
And so to me, that was like the super kind of exciting part about the, the experiment was being able to give these characters a place at the table. Well, the whole class warfare issue is really important to this too. And again, you're not preaching anything. You're telling a story in a platform that allows you to take a stance. But there's a very wide schism between rich and poor in uh, in Shadyville and Thistonville. And uh, so tell me a little bit about how that developed as, as you were finding your way through the script. I mean, I think like to answer a little bit more of your question that you asked before. So the the narrative of the of the movies was not directly taken from the books. We were kind of trying to we felt like we needed to do something a little new because of the experiment itself, because the idea was always baked in that these movies would be very connected and released close together. Um, So from there, we kind of constructed this idea of like I said, the town of Shadyside being a town of outsiders, a town of people that had been marginalized and told that they were other and not good enough and kind of put upon for centuries. And we we really like thought about these these killers as being like representative of like systemic rot and oppression. And and because of that, it, it allowed us to to make this very fun movie that also was, yeah, showing this like big divide between, like I said, between the haves and the have nots. And at the end of the day, it was just the thing that is always the scariest to me is people. And so the fact that we could peel back the layers of the onion and get to the third movie and kind of like show the truth of what happened at the beginning of Shadyside and and Sunnyvale and show that there was, um, a, a kind of a human force behind this and really explore that felt like very exciting. And I think that's something that we couldn't do if it had been just one movie. It would have been too right. much. You know what I mean? It would have been too much. So yeah, yeah. It's, it's cool that we were able to do that. Spread out over three movies. There's a lot of content in the course of these three movies. Yeah. <laughs> now, Shady Side seems to me a pretty uh, transparent version of Salem. Uh, and uh, the U.S. historical uh, witchcraft center of the world. Um, I I went to Salem and I studied it a lot when I was writing Hocus Pocus. I'm so happy that you're bringing up Hocus Pocus. (laughs) Movies of all time, and I've watched it so many times, and I I could gush about this for hours. Continue. (laughs) Well, yeah, so uh, the whole idea of witchcraft and it being such an outrageous occurrence at its time and young women being killed as witches being stoned to death, uh, buried underneath the stones um, till they couldn't breathe anymore. But in your case, witchcraft is true or magic is true. Even though there are twists and turns that happen, magic is true. So in a way, um, the version of Salem that was based on uh mistreatment of young women and the mistrust of young women turns out to be something entirely different in your hands yeah totally i think that like we wanted to we wanted to preserve this thing which is historically accurate about um young women that have that seem outside or seem weird or seem like they're not interested in following kind of the the rules that that society at that time valued um were were ostracized and scapegoated in this very violent, horrific way. So we wanted to preserve that, but we also wanted there to be something 
like you said, for lack of a better word, like something magical in this kind of love that Sarah and Hannah have that would carry through generation after generation. And, and there is a devil in this world. Like there is, we are living in a supernatural world within Fear, Fear Street. And so the idea that Solomon could say that he was going to sacrifice this town and he was the one that is, he's the witch. Like he is the witch ultimately. Um, so it, it was, it was, it was cool. I think that the thing with 1666, that's, that's so for me powerful is that we are telling this very human relatable grounded story, but then we still managed to kind of get that supernatural in there and hopefully tie up all of the, the pieces. Of right. It. And of course it was 25 years before the actual 1692 witch trial. Correct. The 1666 <laughs> was just too good to like, like the 666 of it. It's a good good. number. It was like, I can't, it's just too good. Like it's, you know, like you have to use it. So. (laughs) Well, tell me about the choice of those three different periods, because you also stylistically shoot the different time periods in a different way. I noticed 1666 is entirely handheld, which was surprising to me, especially because you're choosing the least formal filmmaking techniques in the most historic story. So tell me about how you decided on the approach. It's 1978, 1994, not in that order, 1994, then 1978, then 1666. So tell me how you justified the various approaches to those stories. Yeah. So when we were figuring out like kind of what the three, um, what the three time periods would be, originally there was a thought that we would be in the earlier 90s, so like 1990 or something like that for the first movie. And I started to feel like that wasn't distinct enough. It felt like 1990 was an overlap with the 80s. And um, because we were trying to tell this like story of generational trauma and these characters that would, we needed a certain amount of time apart. Um, and obviously as a filmmaker and also as a movie fan, the awesome part about this is like, okay, if we put it a little later in the 90s, we can be paying homage to those kind of new slashers that I think Scream ushered in. Um, And then like, I know what you did last summer, the faculty, like all of those kind of, they have a more meta feel. The characters feel a little more self-aware. They're more sarcastic. And they've actually seen genre films themselves, these characters. Exactly. They're aware of kind of the cultural universe of of horror. Um, And so that felt exciting. And then the filmmaking was inspired by that. So we we took a very like traditional kind of studio filmmaking approach. Um, there's a lot more like dolly track that was being laid, um, crane work, things like that. Um, then for the second movie, it felt like the 80s is the real kind of heyday of slasher, but 78 was kind of the beginning of it all. I mean, I guess Texas changed. That's the year of Halloween, yeah. Yeah, exactly, Halloween. So to me, like Halloween is like, Halloween sits up there with Scream is like, you know, I don't know who who inches out the other one, but they're at the, the top 10 for me of just movies, period, horror aside. Um, they're so brilliant. So yes, for 78, it felt like we could kind of, yeah, look at those movies, look at Halloween, look at Texas Chainsaw, look at all the Friday the 13th, look at Nightmare and kind of try to live in a more stylistic 70s universe versus the 80s. Um, and, and as you said, the filmmaking changed. So it started to get like a little looser. We are, we're in a lot of steady cam for 78, which was fun. Um, right. The Panaglide that Carpenter used in Halloween in 78 was, was brand new to the genre other than the steady cam that 
that uh, was used in The Shining. Yeah, uh, but that was 1980. So yeah, completely. So it was like really fun to be able to do that and to play with color and lighting and just kind of have the whole the whole approach be be different. Um, and then for 1666, it was kind of like, okay, now, now, now what do we do? And, you know, I, I used handheld a lot in, in my indie movie and and to me, I felt like I, first of all, I just love shooting handhelds. Like, I think there's something so organic about it and it's, it's very kind of, I think, creatively freeing and it felt like the right decision to keep to keep our our like our viewership feeling immediate with the characters and kind of what they're going through and tied to their point of view and and energetic and not kind of um, distancing. So mm -hmm. I think that often with like movies that are set in the past or you know yeah period movies historical movies there's a tendency to keep them very like clean and you know kind of painted um, yeah. and which which I love but for this it felt like I wanted to be a little closer to the characters. Um, There's a visceral energy about working handheld, especially in period, which, like you said, we rarely see handheld cameras in period stories. Yeah. But we don't often say, well, the witch is something that feels very formal, but in a very different way. And totally. it's, it's quite dread inducing that film. Yeah. Completely. So yeah, so that was kind of the decision with 1666. And I looked at movies like The Witch and The Village, The Crucible, kind of all those classics. And then also um, The New World, Terrence Malick's The New World, which is, is Steadicam. Um, but I felt that that kind of energy of like those characters and the way they look at each other and interact and just like flow from like, it's just such a smooth kind of like exciting filmmaking. Um, but that was also really important to me. Well, having been someone who had only done extremely contemporary modern stories, to be able to do three period pieces must have been a, a blast. When it starts out, when you go to the mall and there's software, et cetera, and B. Dalton books and all these places, it's, it's so heartwarming and hilarious at the same time. Totally. It was so fun. It was so fun. Like it was also very stressful because to have to shift between the time periods was a lot, obviously. Um, but but the 90s, first of all, because it was so close to kind of my teenage dumb was just a joy. And it was, it was like walking into the mall that I spent so much time in or the grocery store. I um, One of my jobs when I was in high school during the summer was working third shift at a super Kmart. And I remember I, I worked there and one of my friends worked there too. And there's just like really strange people that, that do their grocery shopping at like one or two in the morning. And our imaginations just ran wild of like, are they vampires? Like what's going on? Like, why is this entire family coming right now? And it's so like being able to revisit that time period with movie one and with the end of the third movie was just so like joyous and, and great. And like, the AOL, like all of it was just, it was just like so awesome. And then also it reminded me how shitty it is to have cell phones in modern filmmaking because it really kills everything. <laughs> yeah, it saves, it's an easy out for whatever you need. Yeah, exactly. There's my GPS, there's contact with the police, there's you name it. Totally. Um, and then the seventies, obviously I, I didn't experience 78 directly. I, I wasn't, I wasn't born yet, but. Um, <laughs> I did. <laughs> <The fun. laughs> but there was like the fun of just like 
I, I personally never went to summer camp. Um, and I was obsessed with the parent trap, like the original, like Haley Mills one. And I wanted to go so badly and my parents just never let me go. And, um, so being able to make that movie also was like so thrilling. And I would, I would swim during lunch, like during our lunch break in the lake. And it was just like, this is the best. I Um, loved Haley Mills so much. And when I was working on amazing stories, I wrote an episode called the Greeble that she starred in that Joe Dante directed. So I got to meet and work oh, with Haley Mills. Amazing! I didn't know that. That's crazy. I'm gonna have to hunt that down because I also a huge Haley Mills fan. Obviously, um, that's so cool. That's, <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. So it was amazing. And then 1666 was awesome because I don't know to be able to have a production build a whole like period village to serve this story was just incredible. I remember walking through the village the first time that I had visited with my art director. And I was like, this is just the attention to detail that they they took. And there was no, like everything was period correct, except this is funny actually. So there's a scene in the third movie where Sarah and Hannah are sitting in Hannah's house and they're looking at the Bible. And I used, I did an angle that's under the table that shows them like kind of holding hands and my art director was looking at, and my production designer, Scott, were looking at the dailies and they were like, are you kidding me? You found the one angle where there's a metal nail. And it was like, there was me- like they had used like- Oh no. <laughs> yeah, they had used like whatever. I don't even know what they use, like special like wooden things for anywhere Wood else. Pegs, yeah. What the hell are you doing? She putting a camera under the table. Um, <laughs> and and we, we did VFX it out. <laughs> They were so pissed at me. It was incredible. Well, music is a really important part of this. And I think for everybody, it's when you're growing up, music uh, creates a lot of touchstones in your life that you identify with experiences. And your music supervision, I'm sure that you were responsible for a lot of those ideas, but a lot of them predate you by quite a number of years. And but the ability to get songs by David Bowie and Journey and Captain and Tennille and all that stuff was so amazing. Tell me a little bit about that process. And were they all the actual recordings or were some of them sound alikes? No, all of them are the actual recordings, except that I believe the Thelma Houston in 78 is a re-record. Um, but of it's still her. It's just, right. I don't really, I forget how it works. It's like something weird. It's like the the times, um, what is it called? The time signature is just like a little off from the original, yeah. um, but the rest are all like the, the the real ones. And you know, honestly, it was one of the biggest kind of like the thing that I had the most anxiety about when we were when we were shooting and into post because music was such an important part of the process for me. I made these playlists before we had even written the scripts. And then when we were writing the scripts, a lot of cues were written in. So the man who sold the world, uh, Lana and the Bowie version were part of the DNA of that movie from the very beginning. And I also knew, oh no, like these are very expensive and very hard to get. And, but they were so important to the movie and kind of, you know, I think again, when, when I was a, a teenager, it was kind of that amazing period of time where music videos were amazing. Like they were awesome. So like I was watching all the Fincher videos and all the Mark Romanek videos. And like, it was, it was really very influential to me and how I understood storytelling to be visual. And then also like kind of 
like married with with music. Um, so in any case, I was very freaked out because I started in post as we were cutting to put all these great cues in. And luckily, Netflix was just so supportive and understood the importance of kind of putting you immediately in a time and place. Um, and they really they really backed us. Um, which I'm were there any songs that you weren't able to get that that you tried for? There's there was there's a few. One was very, very expensive, which was Sabotage, um, Beastie Boys. Very, very expensive. And I think that probably we could have gotten that. But I, you know, it was a bit of like, um, like chess of like, if we get that one, then we're going to have a little less for this, um, like this type thing. And so that didn't feel worth pursuing. And then the other one that really sticks in my head was Metallica, because I had Enter Sandman in there and they just will not clear that song. Like, I don't even, I don't think we could ever afford it, but they just won't. They're like, we don't need to do that. We don't need to put that song in anything. So, but that song was like baked into my, like, you know, high school dance experience. (laughs) (laughs) And it's just so good. It's so good. Um, So, but I'm happy with, with what we put in instead. Yeah. Well, I was really impressed with how many of those recognizable songs you were able to use because these days, songs are more expensive than ever. When we were doing The Stand back in 94, we were able to get all the songs that King had written into the miniseries for like 15 grand each, but on a favored nations basis. But these days, it's just outrageous. By the time I was doing Riding the Bullet, which is set in 1969, I got a bunch of the songs I wanted, but it was right at the cusp before it was impossible. Yeah. And it's, you know what, we're at another kind of turning point where I think that streaming rights are kind of, they have like a little bit of like a, a pathway that's like around what theatrical was because theatrical numbers are out of control and streaming numbers are a little more realistic, but now they are catching up. So I think that we just kind of scooted by. Um, it was still a very substantial budget, but not what it would have been theatrically, like it would have been really crazy. Um, so yeah. Well, in every regard, these this series of movies, uh, the production values are amazing. All of the CGI is really top level. Uh, the orchestral score is impressive. And it just the size and scope of the show has increased so much. But, but the cinematography, the art direction, the production design, and maybe that's one reason is because your producer used to be the head of 20th Century Fox, uh, but Peter Chernin. But uh, tell me about that, because it seems like you had more resources by far than you've worked with before. And there's still never enough time or money, no matter how much you have. But tell me about working under those circumstances that are much less penurious than what you had to work with before. Yeah, I mean, it was it was really a very charmed, great experience. I'd say like production wise. So as far as like cinematography and my production design and everything, we shot the three movies in 106 days, which a lot of days. But also, as you know, not that many days for three separate movies. So our piece was really it was it was not um, it was not a full indie movie pace. I would say, but I'd say we averaged like between four and six pages a day as far as shooting. And, you know, obviously 
with stunts and with blood and kind of with everything. So that was breakneck. And I would say that um, I had an amazing team of people that just like were super, super talented. We were all serving the same vision and everyone just stepped it up and brought their A, 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 A game. Um, and that is really lucky. Like there is no business um, having the production value of the village that we have on the budget that we had. Like that's a, just a testament to my production designer, Scott, and my art director, Sean. And, and that kind of like trickles through all of the departments. Um, then when we got into post, I was really lucky to be able to hire Marco Beltrami to do the score and Marco, you know, did all of the original Scream. He's amazing. He's Quiet Place, um, Proto Safari, all of these things. And Marco was was also kind of like, let's do this. Like, let's he he was ready for the challenge of it. Um, but that said, this is another place, and and also on the VFX side where Netflix really stepped in and recognized what we needed resource wise and supported having full orchestra um, that recorded in um, in London three times. And and with the VFX, it was also like they. They knew that like, I am just, <laughs> I don't know, like CG like always tweaks me if it looks not great. And so I just like kept grinding and kept grinding these poor vendors. And um, and in the end, I was I was very, very happy with what we, we had, but it was all about the support of Netflix. And it was a dream, like it was, it was a dream. Well, the CG is so organic and I'm very impressed by that because still even today, so much CGI work, even in major studio productions, looks like a video game. Yeah, yeah. But you're working with some really organic stuff coming out of the ground and forming into creatures and things like that. That you buy it. That's so funny that you say that because my like the worst kind of thing that I would say when we'd be in these VFX reviews, I'd be like, "So how do we make this not look like a PlayStation Two game?" <laughs> Like, you know, because that is, it is easy to fall. I mean, it's so difficult to make these effects good and feel part of the world. And, you know, what we, what me and my VFX team ultimately came to was leaning into a very organic, gritty, um, gross, like aesthetic that, you know, the fly was a big um, reference for this yeah. and also alien and just keeping it feeling very body like very kind of like as you as you know because you saw honeymoon i'm a big fan of body horror too so yes. that, so your cronenbergian side exactly came that like was able to flourish in this just like weird ass thing that's happening underneath the town <laughs> <laughs> well let's talk about the the fact that it it's three separate films was the production all back to back was it shot like a series where you just went from day one to day 106 yeah. So we basically, we shot all of the 94 parts of the three movies at once. So, you know, there's 94 in the second movie and there's 94 in the third movie and then obviously the first movies, all that. So that was the first kind of 60, 65 days of production. Then we went into 1666 with no kind of hiatus or anything, um, which was jarring. That was a lot to kind of like take our characters from being in this very kind of fun, ridiculous swearing world of the 90s into the 17th century um and then after that we had a four-day hiatus where we prepped second movie which was 1978 so we finished out shooting that um and it, like i said it was 106 days total a lot of nights which was great for me because i'm a night person so i'm like i love this the days are what killed me like those 7 a.m calls 
forget about it. I hate them. Uh, uh, when we were shooting the stand, it was a hundred day shoot for for four two hour movies, and it was in uh, six states and all over the place. And when you're moving, you're constantly on the move to new locations. Often shooting two locations a day, you yeah. lose your mind. And our last our last seven weeks were six day weeks as well. Oh man, yeah. And that's like shooting seven day weeks, twenty four hours a day, but uh, it's insanity. So Right? Like you, you, you are on the edge, but then you're also like, oh, this is the work and this is what I have in front of me. And, and this is my life. <laughs> this yeah. is my when you start on day one of 106, there's not even a tunnel. Yeah, no, the no. light at the end doesn't show up until day hundred. You know? we, we would all like joke about how we were all just living in a black hole of like no past, no future, like just this moment in front of us. And I think that if I started thinking about the amount of work ahead of us, it would have just been like debilitating. But um, it really was lovely, though. I love being on set. So it was fun. It was not um, I mean, it was definitely challenging. And there were days that sucked, but it was really good. Well, I think what most people were probably expecting from Fear Street on Netflix was Stranger Things, you know, it's, and this is not Stranger Things by any stretch of the imagination. It starts out, you think that's where you're going. And so I was, didn't have my hopes up because, you know, I'm an adult and was, was an adult in the eighties as well. So, uh, but going into it and seeing, whoa, this is not your family sci-fi horror drama here. Totally, totally. So philosophically, how would you exp uh, express this to the potential audience? Because at first it's going to be a YA audience attracted to it, but you need to go beyond that to, to an audience that understands we're R-rated here. Yeah, I don't know. I think that, it, you know, the hope for me with these movies is that, yeah, people like like you and me who kind of grew up in these different eras can can kind of feel like, oh, I'm going to dip in. I'm going to like enjoy this like little bit of nostalgia that's kind of crafted for me. Um, and then realize that it, hopefully the movies are doing two things. So on the one hand, we're being very, we're being very true to the genre of slasher. Like it is violent. It is bloody um, and, and brutal. And, and then combined with that, you know, we're, we're telling a story that like hopefully you care about these characters and you realize that the violence has real stakes for them and you're you're kind of behind their journey um so that i don't know that's my hope for it and honestly at the end of the day that you just click on it and you have fun um, yeah so. but there is much deeper storytelling in in a way slashers the great ones were as good as it gets but the vast majority of them were just a, a bunch of killing teenagers, you know, yeah. one after another. But this, these are characters who have struggles and they have problems and, you know, they feel real. And there's a depth and complexity that you don't come across in the 80s slashers in this regard. And then it goes places much deeper and stranger than than the guy in the woods, uh, you know, chasing you with an ax. But boy, the work of the ax in this movie is so explicit in ways I've never seen in a movie before. <laughs> That's really funny. But I, you know, I think that I, I've talked about the um, the second movie with the axe and with Tommy and with everything. That was the last movie that we filmed. And by the time we were shooting that movie, I was just like, so tired. And so like, 
all of the blood, all of the violence, like all of the things. And I can't, I, every time I watch that kind of like end sequence with the sisters, with Ziggy and Cindy, um, I, I feel two things. I feel the emotion of like, my actors are amazing. They're really like bringing this like tragic kind of thing that's happening between them. And then also I just can't help but laugh because I'm like, oh my God, the blood is so crazy. <laughs> it, so, it, uh, there are buckets, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell me about how you uh, how you approach the centerpiece scenes like that. Do you storyboard? Do you shot list? Do you do you sit with your your, your crew and hammer it out beat by beat? Um, uh, what is your process in that regard? So we only story we only had the luxury of storyboarding a few sequences throughout the movies, um, and mostly that was just because we had we had a good chunk of prep, but you can't to be able to prep all three movies at once, we would have had to start like a prep that started months and months before what we actually had. So we only really storyboarded the, the sequence with the bus crash in the first movie. Um, and I'm trying to think there was another one too, but I can't remember. And that was just because we were dealing with like such intense stunt work that would also have to hand off to VFX and blah, blah, blah. For the other sequences, I didn't storyboard, um, but I shot list like, you know, as much as possible. And my, my uh, DP is this amazing guy named Caleb Heyman. And then my, uh, my AD, Doug Torres, we would just ever like in prep, we would be shot listing for, you know, five to six hours a day. And then once we started shooting, we would be shot listing on the weekends. There was not like one weekend while we were shooting that we had ever free. We were always either shot listing or scouting um, you were never doing your laundry. Yeah. Never doing our laundry. My, my, my house was such a mess. <laughs> it, was like, it was a real thing. But, um, so shot listing is always really important to me. Even at the end, um, when we were just so kind of like short on prep time, um, and we didn't have full time to shot list. I, my thing is always just like looking at the, um, the scenes and the sides and thinking about the edit and making sure that like those pieces that I need, that I know I'm gonna need when I get into posts are there and kind of underlining those and making sure we're hitting those. So that, I, I'm always thinking about post in a yeah. weird way. It's always looking Do you find yourself having to be flexible because as the day shortens, your shot list starts looking completely 100%. undoable? You know, like I think you always end up being like, and I'm gonna get this and this and this and then like, you get closer to lunch and you're like, well, maybe that one there doesn't need. And then by the end of the day, you're like, so I got like five of these. <laughs> like, yeah. The the morning you start walking and in the evening you start sprinting. Totally. Yeah. I, I, and I can't like, even though I know it every day, it's the same thing. <laughs> so uh, when you're in the casting process, tell me about that process and whether people recommended to you by Netflix that they wanted to work with uh, and how that worked. So basically there was a handful of actors that I was familiar with because I had done this pilot for Amazon a year earlier. And I, so I had come across Olivia who plays Sam, um, Julia who plays Kate, David Thompson who plays Ryan Torres. Um, I had cast them in this pilot that I had done. So I knew them. I was familiar with them. They still all had to read and kind of do chemistry reads and stuff, but I knew them. I knew that they would be right for this. And Kiana, who plays Dina, I had also come across during that process. She wasn't right for the pilot, but when I saw her read for that, I was like, oh, that is Dina. Like if I, if 
if Spear Street actually comes together and happens, like that's who this has to be. Then there were other people um, like uh, Benji who plays Josh or Fred that plays Simon or Emily or McCabe from my second movie that I hadn't, I wasn't familiar with at all. And that was definitely like my amazing casting director, Carmen Cuba, bringing them to, to my, my, you know, kind of knowledge. Um, and they were just people that I came across. And I was like, Oh shit. Like they're so amazing. I feel so lucky that they're not super well-known yet. Um, and then there was people like, like Sadie, who is very well-known from Stranger Things. Um, and I know her very well um, because of that show. And she was interesting because I felt, um, I wasn't sure because she had already been on a show that was so nostalgic, like heavy. Um, I was like a little like nervous about that. And so she was thrown through the gauntlet like everyone else and had to do a chemistry read. And she's just so good. She's just yeah. like undeniably good and she pops and she's so professional that it was like, she, I don't, she's our Ziggy like that. She is it all. So she was that. And then with Maya, Maya was definitely like, you know, obviously an homage to Drew Barrymore in Scream. Um, <laughs> and, and also like a little bit of like a, like a little bit of like a, for lack of a better word, of a flipping off of like, oh, you think that you like this like Stranger Things actress? Well, we're gonna murder her. <laughs> and like, and not neatly. Not, yes. not Stranger Things. This is gonna be much like more gruesome and intense and all of the things. So yeah. Yeah. Well, what's your favorite part of the process? Is it pre-production? Is it planning the effects? Is it location scouting? Is it designing? Is it casting? Is it the actual shooting or post-production, the music? Tell me what your favorite parts of the process are. I I love all of it. I feel so lucky that I get to do this um, every day. I'm so thankful for that. But um, my favorite part is, is production. I like shooting. I like being on set. I like the, the energy of that and kind of all of like the working like pieces coming together to do this insane thing and the pressure of knowing that like here is the work in front of me and at the end of the day we got to get that done um so i just i love that i'm addicted to that feeling um and I, so i like all the other parts too but like that for me is like a joy so, well you're a writer also as i am as well and the job of writing is solitary it's yeah. so solitary and it's the exact opposite of production where you have to be in this the eye of the hurricane and so not a lot of people can handle both sides of that coin very well do you find yourself equally at home on both sides i mean i think that writing is the singular like most important part of the process like i think that it, you know obviously everything trickles down from the script the script needs to be solid it's so important and I love writing. I also hate writing. It's so <laughs> hard. It's just hard and it takes time. And so I, I love doing it, but it's not the same. I don't get the same. I kind of do it because I'm like a weird control freak. Um, but, <laughs> but, but I don't feel the same joy about like, there's that excitement when you finish something or you come up with a good idea or you're like collaborating and you're like, you know, you, you, you crack it. But like the, the minutia in between is just like, oh, my God, like so, <laughs> so much. Um, so, yeah, so that's how I feel about writing. Post, I really like post also, but it is much more 
solitary than, um, than shooting. And I just, I'm very extroverted. So I like being around a lot of people. So my poor, my poor editor, Rachel had to spend like two years in a room with me just being like, like just like talking all the time. Um, but I do, I do like post as well. So Lee, what's next? Oh man, I don't know. So I'm, I'm going to shoot a couple episodes of this limited series called The Staircase, um, which is based on this documentary that is now on Netflix. Um, but HBO is making the limited series and it's Antonio Campos is, is directing six of the eight episodes. It's his baby wow. and I'm doing two of them. Um, and that just feels very exciting to me. It's a totally, it's a very, it's not genre, but it's very dark. Um, and it, it's going to be like a little reset for me, um, that I'm super, super excited about. And then, you know, I'm thinking about the next thing starting to, I just finished the movies not that long ago. We were still doing kind of QCs of the files like three weeks ago. So my, I started, I've started working on new ideas, but very incipient and kind of like looking for the next thing. So, yeah. Well, you've gone from an independent film that has a certain limited reach. Um, now you've got this big Netflix production and Netflix is available everywhere around the world. So uh, is there a different feeling to you in that regard uh, about how reaching such a massive audience? Yeah, I think, you know, it's weird because I don't, I try, I'm not on Twitter my Instagram is private. So I'm not like fully immersed in the world of the internet, which I think is what gives you that reflection of like the reach of things. But I've certainly like experienced kind of next level, like fan art and just like kind of like joy from, from viewers that it was not a part of the experience of honeymoon. And like knowing that Netflix is in so many hundreds of countries across the, the world, it's just, it's crazy. It's so cool. Um, and it's, it's just, um, I don't know. It's just a dream. It's, it's amazing. It's great. Well, Lee Janiak, thank you so much for joining us on the slab here at postmortem and can't wait to see what's coming next. Thank you. And next time we have to talk about Hocus Pocus more. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris on the Dread Podcast Network. Download new episodes every Wednesday and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Calling all coffee drinkers. If you've been trying to enhance your daily coffee routine, then Quest has got your back with their brand new iced coffees. Now available in two delightfully delicious flavors that'll be sure to add an extra pep in your step. Vanilla latte and mocha latte. Quest has been on a mission to help fuel you with protein-forward foods you'll love. Each bottle of Quest iced coffee is packed with 200 milligrams of caffeine, the same amount as two cups of regular coffee, plus 10 grams of protein per serving to help you supercharge your day. And did I mention that they only contain one gram of sugar? It might just be time to cheat on your iced coffee with iced coffee. Find Quest iced coffees on Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition. That's Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition.